This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the Hill Country Authors Podcast. Not only is the Texas Hill Country the most beautiful place in Texas, but it also has some of the best writers in Texas. On this podcast series, I'm going to explore writers in literally all genres of writing, both fiction and nonfiction. I hope you'll join me in this journey. Today I visit with Fredericksburg author Julia Daly. Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox back for another episode and I'm thrilled today to have Julia Daly with me. Julia is our first Fredericksburg author. So the Hill Country is a vast and mighty place with lots of different talents. So Julia, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about your professional background? I say that I have taught everything from kindergarten to the university level. I have a BS in English and a master's degree in education, but my career was certainly very varied and mostly in public relations and marketing. I was a communications adjunct professor at Belhaven University in Jackson, Mississippi, and I held many public relations directorship positions at the Mississippi Department of Education, Millsaps College, at several publicly traded companies. And then I became the executive director of the Craftsman's Guild of Mississippi. And we had 300 artisans from 19 different states, and they operate the Mississippi Craft Center on the historic Natchez Trace in Mississippi. And I wrote their stories to introduce them to the public. And so that was one of my very favorite jobs that I held because those artisans like writers and authors are just so interesting and so intriguing. What brought you to the Hill Country? I thought we were looking for a second home. I thought we were looking for cooler summers than Mississippi. But my husband had some board meetings in San Antonio, and every time he would land in San Antonio, he would say, Texas just feels right. And I would say, those aren't cooler summers. And he said, where would you like to look if you looked in Texas? And I said, only the hill country. So we came to the hill country and we explored every little nook and cranny and community in the hill country. And we decided on Fredericksburg and it became our primary home instead of our secondary home. So let's turn to a couple of your recent books. I want to start with No Names to Be Given. I was really intrigued by the subject matter of this book because I'm of that age where I recall all of that. And we live near a very big home for what we used to call girls in trouble or unwed mothers. I really wanted to start with what led you to write this book and did you write it for yourself or for an audience? I had this novel in my head for more than 40 years. I am an adoptee from a maternity home in New Orleans, and that's the premise of my story. When I was public relations director at Millsaps College in Jackson, we were allowed to audit courses as part of our compensation package, and I took a writing course about placing your memories on paper, and I actually ended up writing about three of those chapters of my book in that class, and that was more than 20 years ago, and I searched and found my birth mother when I was pregnant with one of my own daughters, 
And so that story came my mind and it became three young women who meet at that maternity home in New Orleans to relinquish their babies for adoption. And they had to return home as if nothing transpired. You mentioned that time in history and a lot of the young women today, I'm talking to a lot of book clubs with a lot of young women and they'll say, why did anyone have to give up a baby? I don't understand who made them give up their babies. They don't understand that baby scoop era. It was about from the 30s to almost the 80s when young women who were not wed and became pregnant were shamed and embarrassed in the entire community, but especially by their family. So if that happened to someone, they were shipped away. And when they returned, it was as if nothing happened. So those family secrets have been hidden away as well for many years. And these DNA commercial kits now are bringing out a lot of family secrets that are coming to life. What were those homes like for the expectant mothers? I asked my birth mother that when I actually met her and she told me they were pretty strict. Most organizations in the country that operated maternity homes were religious organizations. And of course, they thought that these girls had sinned and needed to be reprimanded. And so they were pretty tough. They had to work. They had to work the gardens or clean the rooms and bathrooms and sometimes even help with the preparation of meals. So they were pretty tough on these young women. And yet a lot of them created wonderful, strong relationships with each other. It was kind of like being in a foxhole during the war. You get to know somebody very quickly if you're in those pressure type situations. So a lot of them did try to maintain some uh, relationships there with the women that were there with them. How did you bring the story forward with the three main female characters? The story has a thread of memoir running through it because it's one of the characters is almost verbatim my childhood memories as an adopted child. There was one that I remember I was riding in the back seat of my mother's car with some best friends. And of course, we loved the Supremes and all their songs. And we were shouting love child from our back seat. And my mother turned off the radio like it was on, the button was on fire. And she said, why do you even know the words to that song? And I said, because we love all their songs. And we didn't realize, nor did I understand until I was an adult, that I was the love child of that song. And my adoptive mother was trying to protect me and didn't want me to hear those words in my head as being my own. So there, were, there are a lot of those chapters that really belong to my story. But I didn't want to make it a pure memoir because my birth mother was still alive and these were her secrets that she had not even told her sons that she had given me up for adoption. And so I didn't want to use that format. I wanted to make it more fictional. So I made a little bit of a thriller with it because these women return home and then 25 years later, they're brought back together by a blackmailer who threatens to expose their secrets all the way to the White House. The, I'd like to ask you a few questions about adoption because you mentioned from really the 30s to perhaps even the 80s, 
shame was used to get women to, to give up their babies for adoption. Adoption is still with us today and in many ways, maybe even more important in 2023. And how do you feel about the institution of adoption? And in your opinion, is it more important today? That is such a hot button issue, just like all the women's issues today. And they say adoption is the flip side of abortion. There are so many hundreds of thousands of children who are in the foster care system. And I think that system definitely can use some corrections, as well as adoption. All institutions can and can be improved. Like we were talking about the maternity homes, they've been around since the 1800s. But today, they're trying to help young women keep their babies, find a job and find daycare and things like that. So they're trying to keep the families together more than they ever did back in the baby scoop, scoop generation. And, you know, when I'm talking to these book clubs, we talk about how illegitimate was actually stamped on some of our birth certificates and father's names were not on the birth certificates and the Bureau of Records issued new certificates for adoptive parents showing that they gave birth to the baby, not the birth mother. So if you became pregnant in those days, the ridicule and the shame was just it just it just was incomprehensible to those today. And I'm just hoping that today they at least do a better job of leaving health records with the babies who are adopted and that older children are considered for adoption. My own daughter had two natural children and then adopted four, and they have blended beautifully into our family. There's always so much to love to give the children don't have to be your bloodline for you to love them and for them to be a part of your family. And there are 100 million Americans today that have adoption in their immediate family. So there are a lot of us out there. And I think that's been my favorite part of writing this book is I've heard from other adoptees, from adoptive parents, and even from birth mothers who have told me about their stories. And that has been a great honor to listen to them. Let me turn to a book that on the face looks and sounds very different, but may have some similarities. And that's The Fifth Daughter of Thorn Ranch. And frankly, I cannot think of a more of a Texan story than this. Over the, I'm a lawyer by professional background. And over the years, I've met the, some of the women who ran these ranches. I've read about them. I've studied about them. Typically, they were smarter, tougher, sometimes meaner than the boys because they had to be, uh, because they were women. But you set this in contemporary times. So I wanted to maybe explore this book with you. And what led you to, to want to write this book? When we moved to Texas, I became enamored with these vast Texas ranches, especially those generational ranches that are held by the same family for many generations. And then we visited Mesa Verde National Park near Durango, Colorado, and I saw what looked like condos built into the side of the mountain. And I didn't know we had ruins like that in the U.S. And the guide told us that no one knows what caused that people or that tribe to leave there after so much work they used to create their homes. They didn't know if it was famine or drought or 
warfare. So I thought to myself, if they left Colorado, they could have migrated to Texas. So my story became the heiress to the largest ranch in Texas stumbles upon an ancient people living on her property. And I wanted to really turn the, the ranch, the theme of the ranch and cowboys on its head and make this ranch a million acres, the largest ranch in Texas and maybe the country, and have it owned by women. And so that that's what I decided to do with that. The I'm in I moved to Kerrville over two years ago from Houston. And so I'm intrigued by the change in culture in Texas and what it will mean for Texas going forward and this clash of cultures. Could you speak a little bit about the, what you've seen of this clash, either from big city to people like me moving to a smaller town or ranch families who may decide it's time to sell out, go condo for lack of a better phrase. I went to what, was the largest ranch in Texas at one time, King Ranch. I wanted to see the atmosphere and see the vastness of a property before I wrote about it. And I was told there that it's an extremely difficult job to run a ranch and make it profitable. You think of the drought we've been having for years and trying to own to grow your own hay. My neighbors who have cattle are just paying three times what they normally do for hay because they can't grow their own. And they they have sold their cattle because of the situation. Water dries up and they have to bring the water in for livestock and prices on everything has risen, especially the livestock they're selling because of the overabundance, except for the livestock that they're selling because of the overabundance. And it's that old supply and demand scenario. But what I'm most concerned about since I moved to this little village here in Texas is that I wish we had gotten here 20 years ago because this little town has exploded with tourism and we've got a hundred wineries founding us and that seems to take up all the land. And so I think a lot of the original owners of these properties are finding maybe their children don't care anything about ranching because they've seen the the work and the toll that it might take on these families. And so a lot of these gorgeous generational ranches are being divided up into subdivisions. And when you when you have all these subdivisions crowded in together, it's a million of us are sticking our straws into the same milkshake. These aquifers can't handle the number of wells that are being placed into the ground. And so that's what I think is going to be our issue going forward in Texas and everywhere else are water issues. And I just wanted to emphasize with this ranch in this book that the youngest daughter, the fifth daughter of this ranch is being expected to run this ranch. And she's not sure that she wants that responsibility. So it's that push pull between parents and child. And this is what's expected of you. Like in my first book, is this expected of me? Do I have to do everything my parents tell me to do? Can I choose my own life? And so I'm really grieving watching Texas being di divided up. 
for so many more people and not having the infrastructure here to support it. I'm afraid that our only undisturbed properties in the future will be our national parks and maybe our animals will be viewed like in a zoo. Whenever I have the chance to talk to a writer, I have to talk to you about writing. So could you tell us a little bit about your process, research? When do you write? How do you write? What's that like for you? When I'm on a timeline and project, I write at least six days a week, even if it's just for an hour, even if it's for 200 words, it may be 200, it may be 2000. I like to stay in the story. So even when I'm away from it, I still daydream about it. When I write, I'm, I don't think this is unusual, but I see everything as if it's happening on the big screen. I can see what they're wearing and what they're eating and what, you know, what they're doing. And so that is like a daydream for me all the time. With the internet, research is at our fingertips, literally. And sometimes we can fall down rabbit holes there and spend too much time there. And I know for the fifth daughter, I wanted to go and actually see the property so I could understand what I was writing about. And with no names, I actually started my tour my book tour there at that maternity home that's now condos, <laughs> but, and go back to all those familiar haunts. So I do like to go and see, just like I got the idea from Mesa Verde. So I do like to go and do my research, actually seeing what I'm going to be writing about. So I try to do that. And I was once a night owl. I used to write between 10 at night and one o'clock in the morning. But now I have two big labs that don't let me sleep in. So I have to feed them and run them around the property. And then I try to settle in to write. So I also see my story play out in my head. Do you ever have characters do things you weren't planning? They really do. And when I started writing fiction, people told me that the characters would start talking to you. And I would just laugh and think, these people are delusional. These characters aren't going to talk to me, but they really do. And when I have a loose outline, they say pantser or plotter, and I'm kind of between. But when I do a loose outline and these characters start talking to me, they say, no, we don't want to do that. We're going to go in this direction. And I'll think, okay, we'll just see where it goes. <laughs> I love that. Let me ask, do you have, or what are your plans for your next book, if any, at this point? It's funny because I'm taking a script writing class online right now because my two books are being shopped around studios in Hollywood and my media agent sent me the notes that a script writer had taken the fifth daughter and was going to do a, a pitch from the fifth daughter for the studios. And when she sent me the notes, I looked at it and thought, is this my book? Maybe she sent me the wrong notes because this doesn't sound anything like my book. And these script writers can just take your idea, not even read your book and do what they want with it once they have the rights. And I think that's why we always say the book was better than the movie, because they don't have to read the book to make the movie. And I decided I would try the script writing to see if that's something that I would like to do and to write my own scripts instead of having somebody else write my scripts from my books. 
But I'm not sure I like the format because you don't have any interiority in script writing. You can only give directions for the actors to walk to the table and pick up something or whatever and dialogue. So you don't get to hear their thoughts and their dreams and their fears. And I'm just not sure if I like that. I have thought about a third book. I was going to take the fifth daughter back to the first daughter and bring it forward for each generation. The media agent tells me that since Yellowstone is so popular right now, that fifth daughter might fit in real well by doing that because they go back to the 1800s and bring it forward. So that's a possibility. You're also a podcaster. Tell us about your podcast. I wanted to pay it forward to my fellow writers, and I thought I would record a few podcasts, and that would be a nice gift to authors. And so I found a podcast host, and I bought the equipment and finally got some good internet here in in Fredericksburg, and I began to upload the podcast. And I thought, I'll do 10 or 12 of those, because they say that after 10, you might have the podcast fade. And I thought that would be fun, but I just recorded my 141st podcast just since March of last year. I'm recording two a week and uploading two a week, and it shows no sign of abating. I've just been so surprised of all of about all of us who have written our first book after the age of 50, and that's the theme of my podcast is I'm celebrating those of us who published our first book after the age of 50. I just didn't realize how many of us are in that group. I'm hearing from people every day who want to be on the podcast. It's heard in lots of different countries now, and it's become quite popular. So Authors Over 50 is the name of the podcast. Julia, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask you if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, your books, the podcast. We'll, of course, link to the podcast as well as the books on Amazon. But where would be the best place for them to go to find out more about you? They can visit my website at www.juliadaily, and that's daily newspaper, D-A-I-L-Y.com. And they can even listen to some of the podcasts that live there. Julia, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me, and I hope we can continue this conversation, and I greatly look forward to being on your podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Hill Country Authors Podcast. If you have a book or are an author and like to come on my podcast, please let me know. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. The Hill Country Authors Podcast is available on the Texas Hill Country Podcast Network. And where all great podcasts are played.